Great, if you can make your way back to your seats, we're going to get started. And uh, please open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 23. Joshua 23 is our passage of Scripture this morning. And we're going to begin reading in verse 1 as we head in toward the close here of the book of Joshua, which in our series, Seeing Christ in All of Scripture, what a joy it's been to look at the book of Joshua and see Christ within this book. I'm looking forward to seeing him together with you in chapter 23 as well. So Joshua 23, we're going to be reading the entire chapter. Let's read God's word together. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations. For your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now... I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. Isn't that a great verse? All have come to pass. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things 
until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. The title of the message this morning is, We Will Serve the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to hear the preaching of the word this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for you sending your own son down to die on the cross for sinners. While we were still sinners, your son, Jesus Christ, died for us. Thank you so much for that good news. Lord, we thank you as well for just the lessons in this chapter of Scripture. And I pray that you would drive them home into our hearts and cause our hearts to burn with a desire to love you more and to cling to you with even greater devotion and passion. Thank you so much for your hold on us and your grace in our lives. And we thank you so much, Lord, for the fact that when you lay hold of us, you never let us go. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, I, I was thinking about Joshua chapter 23 from the standpoint of, it's in the home stretch here. Joshua is now old. He, he was young in the beginning of the book, waging warfare, leading God's people into the promised land. But here, so many battles have been fought. There's still others left to fight, but so many battles this man has fought on the battlefield, and he's now old, and he's wanting to impress upon the people of Israel what is most important. And we're going to see that in 23 and in 24, and, and we're going to have some wonderful lessons to absorb into our soul as we look at these final two chapters of the book of Joshua. This is sort of, in a sense, like the, the Old Testament Second Timothy, where the Apostle Paul is really uh, impressing upon Timothy some of the most important things that matter for the life of a Christian and also the life of a leader. And so my mindset was on a, a good leader here in Joshua chapter 23. And so I've got four points that I want to look at this morning from the passage, from the standpoint of looking at it as from a good leader. And, and I have this, a good leader, number one, points to our amazing God. Secondly, a good leader reminds of sacred tasks. Thirdly, a good leader warns of real dangers. And fourthly, a good leader hopes in God's faithfulness. And I want to let you know that when I'm thinking here of a good leader, I'm thinking of us, really all of us as Christians are called to, from the time we're able to talk and influence other people, we are leaders. We're spiritual influencers in the lives of other people. And so I'm really thinking of this as applicable to every one of us, whether you're young or whether you're older. Uh, gentlemen, I'm thinking of us as, as, as Christian ministers of the gospel, but also thinking of us in terms of uh, just being good husbands and fathers and as single men leading the way for the glory of God. Ladies, I'm thinking of you as, 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 as good wives and moms and single women who will be leaders in the, in the spheres of influence around your life so that you'll make a maximum impact for Jesus in the life that you're living for him. 
And so that's kind of what I got in mind here. I think the Lord wants to impress upon us here in Joshua chapter 23. And we see Joshua's good leadership as he's getting older in that right toward the end here in verses 1 through 3, we see him saying, I'm going to gather and summon all of Israel. And he does that in verse 2. He summons all Israel, its elders and its heads, its judges and officers. And he said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. And look at what he leads in with. He says this, And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. And again, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. The first point is a good leader points to our amazing God. And twice here in verse 3, we see just in one verse of Scripture, Joshua, as the leader of the people of Israel, does a good thing in that he reminds the people of God and what God has done for them. And Matthew Henry, writing about this verse in Scripture in in verse 3, says this, he put them in mind of the great things God had done for them in his days. He put them in mind of the great things God had done for them in his days. And so it's glorious that Joshua here, he doesn't lead in with a sense of, hey, listen, remember everything I've done for you, because he's done a lot. He takes them to God, and he points them to our amazing God and what our amazing God has done for his people. Look at it again in verse 3. You have seen, you have seen all that the Lord your God has done done to all these nations for your sake. And then in this uh, first half of verse 3, what we see here is a reminder of how God has fulfilled his promise all the way back to Abram over 600 years prior to this moment when he told the people of Israel that they would be 400 years in slavery in Egypt, but then God would deliver them out with a mighty outstretched arm and deliver them through the wilderness and into the promised land. God has delivered on that promise and Joshua is reminding them, you have seen now with your very own eyes all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations. Oh, and brothers and sisters, he he is so humble and pointing away from himself to God. And I think that's a real important lesson for us as we are seeking to be a blessing in the lives of other people, not to point to ourselves, but to point instead to the Lord and what the Lord has done and to bring glory to his name and not our own. Jameson Fawcett Brown says this, the modesty and humility of Joshua are remarkably displayed at the commencement of this address dismissing all thoughts of his personal services, he ascribed the subjugation and occupation of Canaan entirely to the favoring presence and the aid of God. It's a good leader that points to God with his or her leadership. And I I love Joshua's example here to the people of Israel, to the leaders of Israel, 
He puts them in mind of the great things that God had done for them in his days. He doesn't talk about his own service and his own sacrifices and the the battles which he waged as a conqueror. But instead, he knows that the battle and the battles were the Lord's. And the fact that they had experienced good success in the fulfillment of God's promises because of God and God alone. God has done it. And I want to ask us, brothers and sisters, as we look at our life's accomplishments, the things that we've been able to do with our lives, the things you've been able to do for God, things you are doing, do you acknowledge that God has been the one who has done it all? Not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. A good leader points away from themselves and points to our amazing God. God has done it. And he also does this in pointing away from himself. He reminds them as well that God has done this. Look at 3a at the very end. Lord, your God has done, done to all these nations for your sake. God has done it. And Israel, God has done it for your sake. He reminds them of the intentional and purposeful love of God for them as a people that out of all the other nations of the earth, the Lord had singled them out and had done it for Israel's sake. And it's important for us also to be reminded that the Lord has for our sake done great things as well. He has fulfilled His promise to us. There is amazing love in this phrase, for your sake if we will allow it to sink into our hearts this morning, brothers and sisters, God is saying, I have done great things for your sake. I'm thinking of a couple of verses of Scripture. Firstly, 2 Corinthians 5.21, a verse you may know well. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God did this. He made this wonderful sacrifice on the cross with His Son. Christ became our sin-bearer for our sake. So great was His personal love for you and I, believer. Take that to heart whenever you see that phrase in Scripture, for your sake. That's a time to drink it in deep. That's a time, as we've been memorizing Joshua 1.8 as our Joshua Scripture memory verse for the book of Joshua, to do not let this book of the law depart from our mouths. Meditate on it day and night. To meditate on the Word of God. To meditate with this phrase of Scripture, for my sake. For my sake he did this. Can influence and change your mindset and perspective throughout a very difficult day. To remember God's personal love for you in Christ. As it's written in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ died for our sake. And you want to know something else? You want to know some more good news? 
Christ was raised for your sake. And we're heading towards Resurrection Sunday, as Tom reminded us this morning, as we're in the period of Lent, building up toward Resurrection Sunday. And it's so glorious to see that Christ not only died for our sake, but he was raised to new life for our sake. And we experience the victory of Jesus Christ over sin and Satan and death. And that's one of the themes that we've been looking at. Christ victor. The one who's victorious throughout the book of Joshua. And what a delight to see him victorious over the grave. And to be reminded of that. For our sake, he died and was raised. Drink in the personal love of God. That not only has God done all this, but he has done it for your sake. And there's so much just in little verse 3 right there. It's little, but it's big. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. He died and was raised for your sake. He delivered his people Israel into the promised land for their sake. So great was his love for them. But also, brothers and sisters, Joshua, as a good leader, reminds them of their great and glorious God when he says, and reminds them, the Lord, Yahweh himself, has fought for you. He's fought for you. Oh, brothers and sisters, God fights for you. Having fought for you in the past, he's also going to continue to fight for you heading into the future. This put me in mind of the glorious passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 22, verse 32, where Jesus says to Peter, after he tells him that Satan had asked him to sift him his wheat in Luke 22, 32, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The Lord has fought for his people Israel, and he continues to fight for his people. He fights for Peter in the midst of knowing and predicting even Peter's denial of him three times. Even in the midst of Peter's denials, the Lord says to him that Satan had asked to sift him as wheat, but he encouraged Peter with these words, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And here we see evidence that Jesus not only fights for us by going to the cross for us and dying for our sins as our sin bearer and rising from the dead for us, he's also engaged in the spiritual warfare each and every one of us are individually involved in as believers. He's praying for us. He's fighting for us. And that good work continues. Charles Spurgeon writing about Jesus praying for Peter that his faith may not fail, says this, we little know what we owe to our Savior's prayers. We little know what we owe to our Savior's prayers. And so, brothers and sisters, old covenant and new, we see Joshua setting an example for us as good leaders to remind people and point to our amazing God and not to us. That God is the one who fights for us. He fights for our sake. And He is the one who we have seen, who has done all these things for our sake. He has driven out all of the Canaanite nations and has established His people here in this context, in the promised land. And He also has driven off our foes 
and has driven away our sins. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. What a great and awesome God. Amen. Secondly, a good leader reminds of sacred tasks. A good leader reminds of sacred tasks. Verse 4, we see more benefit. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. Joshua, yet again, reminding his people specifically how God is going to fight for them, that the remaining peoples in the land, the Lord is going to push them back before them and drive them out of their sight, and that his people shall possess the land just as God promised them. He gives a word of hope right there to the people. But as he gives that word of hope, in verse 6, he turns and reminds Israel of sacred tasks that are their responsibility to walk in. Verse 6 says this, Therefore be strong, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it, neither to the right hand nor to the left. Brothers and sisters, we are called to take to heart Joshua's reminder to the people of Israel into our own hearts today, even as Israel was called to take it to heart when they first heard these words from Joshua. Let us hold fast to the word of God. And let us do everything in our power to be very strong, to not just know the word, but as James reminds us, to be doers of the word also, to be keepers of the word and doers and performers of the word of God that we might bring glory to his name. It's not just merely in the knowing of the word, but it's also in the walking in it and doing it that matters in the Christian life. This is a sacred task that we have. The Lord reminds us here not to turn to the right hand or to the left. And in the reminder there, we are not to add to Scripture or to take away from it, but to know it as it is and to keep it and do it for the glory of God and to do this in the fear of God and for the glory of God. He goes on to say that the importance of this is imperative for them because in verse 7, here we see one of the dangers that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. There's implied here a clear sense that the neglect to keep and to do the words of God in the book of the law of Moses, in the scriptures, to neglect to know the word and to, to neglect keeping and doing the word will actually lead to compromise. It will lead to us mixing with the nations and we will lose the salt and light effect that our lives are meant to have for the glory of God. This is a practical application that directly can apply to our lives right in the here and now. If if we don't hold fast to the word of life, 
slowly over time, not only will we begin to make mention of the names of the Canaanites and their gods and become more worldly, but also bow down to them. And so here's another sacred task. Joshua reminds them in verse 8, and let us take this to heart vividly. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. You shall cling to the Lord. You see here, there's earnestness, brothers and sisters, in these two sacred tasks or duties that the Lord has laid upon us in these verses thus far. You can see the urgency. Be very strong to keep and to do the law. And here in verse 8, you shall cling to the Lord your God. You see that there's an intensity to this. It's not just a haphazard kind of casual walk on the journey to heaven. And I ask each and every one of us, would you describe your life of faith right now in following Jesus Christ as a desperate clinging? Would you describe it that way? Would I? We are called in the word of God to walk with the Lord in a way that can be described as clinging to him. Now, I was so affected in in studying this message. One of the things that kind of fascinates me is there are solo free climbers who actually climb mountains by themselves with no ropes. Men and women who are just crazy. And as I was looking at the statistics of these men and women, there's, there's many of them who have fallen and died. There are a handful of them who have become world-renowned, and it's a fascinating story to me to, to read stories about free climbers who have climbed. And if you look and see pictures of them clinging to rocks, sometimes it's just amazing the photography taken of them because they are just clinging to a mountainside high up in the air, one slip would mean their death. And you get the sense in Scripture here that the way we're called to walk out the Christian life is like that. To hold on to Christ desperately as if our lives and our souls depend upon it because it does. There's an urgency here that we're called to have to, to cling to Christ and to cling to Him with all of our heart and with all of our soul, brothers and sisters, and to take this to heart. Like a free climber clings to a rock face, may we, brothers and sisters of Christ Community Church, cling to the Lord our God. And he goes on in verse 9 to talk, For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. Speaking about God's power, look at this in verse 10. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Again, you see the good leadership of Joshua reminding them again and again of God and his power, who will empower them to keep and do, who will empower them to cling. But verse 11 is like a precious little treasure in the midst of this glorious chapter when verse 11 says, I love this verse, be very careful, therefore, to love 
the Lord your God. To love Him. To love Him. Brothers and sisters, many will say, when asked, hey, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, 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 I believe, I believe, I know all that. But the great separator, the great divider of the one who has true saving faith and the one who merely is following Jesus for what they can get from him with no interest of laying their lives down to be his follower and his disciple is this quality of love. Do you, friend, love Love Jesus. Do you love him? That's the great divider. You see in John chapter 2, there were crowds following Jesus everywhere he went. And it says in there that they, they, their hearts, their faith was sort of a spurious faith. It wasn't a real, genuine, saving, vibrant faith because they were looking to Jesus to get their bellies filled. And that's it. What can you do for me, Jesus? Make me happy? Yeah, I'll call call myself your follower. Oh, friends. What the Lord desires out of each and every one of us is to be so deeply in love with Jesus that in all times, in all seasons, in all difficulties, in all adversities, We love Him faithfully and devotedly. And the word there in verse 11, in terms of this sacred test, it says, be very careful. Be careful. Be very careful to love the Lord your God. To love Him. There's a lot of verses that ran through my mind in relation to this. Couldn't help but think of Revelation 2-4, the church of Ephesus and the assessment of the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation, where the Lord says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. They did so many good things in the church in Ephesus, but they had abandoned the love that they had for Jesus and also by implication for one another that they had had at first. Repent, therefore, and return to the love It's the sense there in Revelation. John Benson, writing about this, says, Christ is displeased with his people when he sees them grow remiss and cold toward him. Brothers and sisters, listen. People are going to fail us. Leaders, and even Christian leaders, are going to fail us. Other Christians, even, are going to let us down. And this world is certainly going to let us down. But mark you, Jesus Christ has never and will never let you down. Do not let the failures and the sins of people, even God's people, ever diminish your personal love for Jesus Christ. Because that would be the great tragedy. But because people do us wrong, we are tempted to grow cold in our own personal love for God. 
And we cannot let that happen. And we must carry a holy urgency and be careful, like Joshua says, therefore, to love the Lord your God. How do we do so? How do we do so? Well, Ephesians chapter 6 tells us grace, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. There's a blessing there. But whenever I think about stoking the fires of my love for Jesus personally, I can't help but think of Luke chapter 7 and the parable of the sinful woman. You remember that? Where Jesus was at dinner at the Pharisee's house. And he said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, this sinful woman who was known as a sinful woman in the town who came in and interrupted the meal and came in and started weeping at Jesus's feet in repentance. And she was wiping the tears that she had shed on Jesus's feet with her hair in worship. And Jesus says, do you see this woman, Simon? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, which was a common greeting. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Brothers and sisters, it's always this principle that can increase and fuel and tend the fire of our own personal love for Jesus. Remember how much you've been forgiven. Never forget how much you have been forgiven. And never stop meditating on how much you have been forgiven in your life by God. Whoever has been forgiven little loves little. But whoever has been forgiven much loves much. This woman in the parable of the sinful woman is an example to all of us. She's my example of how to stoke the fires of personal love and passion for Jesus Christ. Our sins, brothers and sisters, which are many, have been forgiven by the shed blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And upon trusting in Him, our many sins have been forgiven. knowing that we have been forgiven much. Let us, through the years, love Jesus more and more and more. And you know what? I've got fresh fuel for the fire for this every single day. I just ponder the sins of yesterday in my heart and in my mind and in my life. And the fact that my God has fought for me and has forgiven me ought to be cause for me every Sunday morning to come in here with lifted hands and with a broken heart and a contrite spirit saying, Lord, thank you for having mercy on a wretch like me. 
And brothers and sisters, it is from falling out of contact with that, from growing distant from that sense of how much we've been forgiven, that we slowly grow cold and callous in our love and in our affections for our God. But if we stay close by the feet of the cross and we remember Jesus' feet, which were pierced for us, and remember that his blood flowed down to cleanse us from our sins, sins which would have separated us from God forever, sins which would have cast us into hell forever, and to think that God had mercy on us and that he shed his blood on the cross so that by his blood and faith in his blood, we might be saved from the wrath of God because Jesus took it all and forgave us all. It ought to be what fuels our unending praise, brothers and sisters, and causes our love for the Lord Jesus to grow more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight, as Philippians 1 says. Let us never tire of meditating on how much we have been forgiven personally by God, because such is where the fires of personal love and devotion and passion flow. If you are not aware of how much you've been forgiven, I want to encourage you to abide hard by the cross and to not get up from your knees until you are aware of how much you've been forgiven by God. Because if you are not aware, it's not because you haven't sinned much. It's simply because you're not aware of how much you have and you're not aware of how much you've been forgiven by God. And you have happy work in front of you to go once again before the feet of the cross. And remember all that your Savior has done for you. Let that fuel your never-ending and undying love for your resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Joshua led by example in all these things. And he led with conviction in a verse we'll look at more next week. In Joshua 24.15, look at his conviction and his zeal. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. Let us move to point three. A good leader warns of real dangers. And Joshua had in mind the very real dangers that lie before the people of Israel at this time. If you look at verse 6 and 7 of Joshua 23, we see some of those dangers. He says, do not turn aside from the word of God, neither to the right hand or to the left, because it will cause you to mix with the other nations. And then later on, he says, not to turn back. If you look and you see, it says in verse 12, for if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you. Notice the language here. Instead of clinging to God, the language here is if you turn back and begin to cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, these evil nations that still were dwelling amongst them. And actually it says here, Make marriages with them. This In the New Testament, it's talked about being unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Do not get married to somebody who's not a Christian. 
If you're a single brother or sister, you should not entertain getting married to or ever being yoked together closely in a bond with someone who is not a Christian. Because what you see in this passage, the principle is very clear, is that what happens when you do that is that you slowly but surely begin to fade in your love for God. And you start to cling, not to God, but you start to cling and turn back again to your sin. And that's what this turning back represented. It meant intermarrying with the other nations and beginning to transgress the covenant of the Lord, worshiping their false gods, the gods of the Canaanites. And, oh, how sad, brothers and sisters, what took place here. You know, you see a progression throughout Joshua, and this is highlighting one of the dangers. God called his people to wipe out the Canaanites. But you begin to see this compromise start to happen where they don't wipe them out completely. They they keep some of them behind as their servants. They don't fully obey the command that the Lord's given to them. So they keep them as servants at first. And you think, oh, what's the harm in that? And then as time goes along, They begin to know the Canaanites. They begin to know their culture. They begin to know their customs. And then what Joshua's talking about and warning with here is the temptation to turn back and to marry them, to yoke yourself together with them, to give your sons and your daughters to them in marriage, to worship their gods will happen. Once they marry them, then they start worshiping their gods. It's just this sequence of, The command was to wipe them out. They don't wipe them out. And then what happens is there's a slow moving of the yeast going all the way through the lump where they go from having them as servants to marrying them, to marrying them, to worshiping their false gods and serving their false gods. And then it actually says in the book of Judges that they actually become worthless because they had compromised so far. And you see this principle in Scripture play out again and again. You see it in Psalm 1 where... The word of God says, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the place of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. There's this progression of first you walk, then you stand, and then you actually sit and represent sin and sinners. You start walking with it. You start dabbling with sin. Next thing you know, you're kind of standing fixed and entertained by it. And then before long, you actually become a representative of sin itself. That actually happened to Lot. Remember with Sodom? It actually said Lot, at first, he kind of pitched his tents near Sodom. Well, the next thing you read about in the narrative is Lot's actually living in Sodom. And then the, the last thing you hear when the angels are actually coming in to rescue them out, needing to grab him and his family, literally, physically, in order to pull them out, because they were so bound into that culture, was Lot's found sitting at the gates of Sodom. Literally, what the elders would do to represent the city, they would sit at the gates, and there's Lot sitting at the gates of Sodom. Brothers and sisters, we cannot dabble with sin. We must not turn aside from the authority of Scripture in our lives. It will lead us to turn back. It will lead us to compromise. The Canaanites 
ensnared them. And you see Joshua, he's so burdened about these dangers. He says at the very end of the chapter in verse 15, but just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, and this is a good leader, he warns, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. Look at verse 13. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. There is a real danger from Canaanites that still remain. The New Testament parallel to the Canaanites still remaining is our remaining indwelling sin. We must take an adversarial mindset toward the remaining sin that's in our lives, brothers and sisters. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we have also such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. There's that word again, ensnaring. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Sin ensnares like the Canaanites would ensnare. Sin promises joy and life, but sin is a trap for you. It, it, it will be a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes. It will cloud your vision. It will diminish your power bit by bit by bit, ultimately rendering you ineffective in this world. That's what Satan wants to do. And ultimately, sin's design, brothers and sisters, is to destroy your very soul. First Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Our passions of our flesh that still remain. Remember, Peter's writing to the church in Rome. The passions in our soul that still remain are waging war against our souls. This is real. This is a real fight. We're not in heaven yet. We still have battles yet to fight. And so, a good leader warns of the real dangers and presses God's people into the fight and into the battle. And I want to just urge all of us, brothers and sisters, to treasure the warnings that God gives to us in Scripture. Take them to heart. And give thanks to God for those in your life who warn you of danger. Give thanks to God for your spouse who warns you of danger. Give thanks to God for your children who warn you of danger. Children, give thanks to God for your mom and dad who warn you of danger. Brothers and sisters, let us give thanks to God for our brothers and sisters in Christ who warn us from danger. I am so thankful to be in a local church where I know if I were to begin to wander, I know you would come and rescue me. You would do everything in your power to help me come to my senses and to repent. I'm so thankful to be in a local church. I'm thankful for the safety of that. A good leader warns God's people of the real dangers that the Christian life has within it. One final word of application on this point. The reason for the ineffectiveness of God's people is not because they're not relevant enough for the world. 
but because they are too much like the world. You see it here. It's the blending in, mixing with the other nations that kills our salt and light effect, that kills our evangelistic witness. It's compromise that diminishes our potency and our power. But when God's people cling to the Lord and keep and do the law of God, when they are filled with the Holy Spirit and live lives holy unto the Lord, we can have great effect and make the greatest difference for the glory of God. So let us root out all compromise. Let us root out all worldliness in our lives and not make excuses for it, and do everything we can to get on our knees and commit our heart to Christ afresh and turn away from this world and say, take this world and give me Jesus. That's the type of believer that's going to make the most difference. Joshua said this, and let us take it to heart. And the fourth and final point quickly is a good leader hopes in God's faithfulness. Look at 14 again. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, And you know in your hearts and your souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. And not one of them has failed because God is faithful. Amen? And a good leader, a good parent, a good fellow student will remind those around them to have hope in God's faithfulness because God is faithful to his promises. Not one of them has ever failed. So let us cling to him with all of our might, like a solo free climber, brothers and sisters, all the while putting our ultimate hope, not in our ability to cling, but on God's ability to cling to you. Cling to him knowing that he is clinging to you. And though your grip may slip, and mine, his never will. John chapter 10. Here's proof in the word. Verse 27. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Still kind of wavering a little bit, wondering if he's got a hold of you strong enough never to let you go. Look at 29. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And this is where the glorious passage of verse 30. I and the Father are one. Speaking of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, one in essence with the Father. I love this. Jesus is promising, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And Jesus also says, and the Father, who's greater than all, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Listen, I have very little confidence in my grip. The good news is that ultimately the Christian life doesn't rest on my ability to cling to God. The good news for every one of us in this room is is God has a grip that once he takes hold, he never lets go. He will hold us fast. 
as we sung about this morning, brothers and sisters. And as the worship band returns, I want to close with this illustration. I want you to think of it carefully. Let's all pay attention to this. I think this will minister to you. Have you ever seen a mother or father carrying their small child into a pool where the water is over the head of the little child or carrying their child into the ocean when the waves are coming in and they're getting out a little bit deeper, once again, over the head of their little child. The child clings to the father or the mother. And the child clings to the father or mother as if the father or mother is not clinging to them. I mean, you could technically just drop your hands and they're not going to let go. But a good father, a good mother, a good sibling will not let that happen. Even though the little one clings and clings in fear, they're not fully aware that their father, their mother, has hold of them and will not let them go. That is a good image of how we should be and what I believe Joshua is exhorting all of us to in the Christian life. Cling to our Heavenly Father, brothers and sisters, aware of the dangers all around us, all the while taking comfort in the fact that our Heavenly Father has hold of us. Amen? And His wondrous love will not let us go. He will hold us fast. Cling to Him knowing God is clinging to you. If you have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, you are forgiven. And God has laid hold of you. If you haven't, I pray you would repent and believe at this time that Christ and the Heavenly Father might lay hold of you. Give up clinging to the sins of the past and let go of your clinging there and turn to clinging to Christ. Lay hold of Him like the little child that's in deep water. Let your grip on Christ, little ones, be strong and fast as if it did just depend on you holding on to Him. Hold on to Him in that way. Hold on to Him like a solo free climber holds on to a rock all the while knowing and placing your final hope in. It's not ultimately dependent on your grip, but it's on His grip on you. So cling to Him knowing God is clinging to you. Though your grip may slip, His never will. Let's pray and let's stand. Almighty God, we thank you so much for your grip. We thank you so much for your faithfulness and your steadfast love. I pray that we, as we worship here in closing, we would be taking strong encouragement from the Spirit that, Lord God, you have us and you won't let us go. But Holy Spirit, even as we sing, I pray that our grip on you would grow stronger. And Lord God, that we would lay hold of you with with even greater strength with our hands and we would wrap our arms around you 
where we've been clinging to our sin still, I pray that we would let go and lay it aside, that we might lay hold of Christ with both hands. Almighty God, help us to turn away from our sins and turn to clinging to Christ today with all of our heart, knowing that He will hold us fast. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us sing. Amen. Isn't isn't our God who holds us fast awesome and mighty to save? Be encouraged, church, by these words from 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Church, that inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us is what we cling to. And now listen as Peter continues, in this, in this inheritance, in this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what trials lie ahead of you this week. I don't know what trials lie ahead of me this week. But I do know that in the inheritance by which God clings to us, we may rejoice through all of it because we know the glory that awaits us. Go forth in faith for whatever lies ahead, knowing that He holds you fast. Amen. Have an awesome week, church, in the name of our Savior. Amen.